This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Brad Templeton, our first repeat guest. Brad founded Clarinet, the first internet-based content company, is chairman emeritus of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is one of the founding computing faculty of Singularity University, and thinks about autonomous vehicles, nanotechnology, privacy, and digital rights, among many other things. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Brad, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Good to be here. You are our first repeat guest. Well, that's what a lot of people tell me. <laughs> you were number two across a wide variety of media channels. I will number try, one I will being try number harder. <laughs> How you been? Uh, not too bad. Uh, pretty slow, as uh, we were just talking before we went live. Uh, that the uh, the virus doesn't seem to want to go away. It's very annoying. Yeah, the viruses have that habit. Yeah. So, so there was an article that came out today uh, about Philip Rosedale, and they interviewed him on his thoughts on the metaverse, and he pretty much says he doesn't think it's ready for prime time. Uh, I don't know how what your thoughts are on that, but uh, in in light of his, he has kind of an interesting background, having uh, founded Second Life and, and gotten that off the ground back in two thousand three, and. Um, and so when he weighs in on topics like this, uh, I think a lot of people stand up and listen. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to admire in what Philip's done. And actually, after Second Life, he started uh, another thing, which he called High Fidelity. And now he has a third thing, which is also called High Fidelity, but which is entirely different <laughs> right. than the first High Fidelity, which maybe is a little bit confusing. His first High Fidelity was an attempt to do avatar-based uh, conferencing or um, socializing similar to um, I guess you could say second life is that as well but second life is full of this uh, programmable world where you can build and change things you build land you build buildings you build things for people to play with and high fidelity was just let's do video conferencing but with avatars that are very closely linked to your face through motion capture and thus don't take very much bandwidth so it turns out that the betting that bandwidth will be expensive is never a good bet. Uh, although very interestingly, his third version or his third bet, which is also called high fidelity is entirely different. It's an audio only um, conferencing system, right. not like uh, clubhouse or, um, or those other ones in the sense that it does what many people call spatial chat, uh, 
mm-hmm. which is uh, you you do have a visual experience. You have a 2D world. You wander around it. As you get closer to people, they get louder, simulating what happens in a real room. And uh, they did a lot of focus on saying, let's make the sound as good as we can possibly make it. So that's the high fidelity part. The first high fidelity was making these avatars high fidelity. They weren't that good, actually. And this other one is about making the sound as good as possible. And sound is actually pretty important in uh, video conferencing. And here we are podcasting. We've all got some nice microphones, which is a step that everybody should take. Even more important is that we're all wearing headphones. And uh, it turns out that while we have really nice echo cancellation software and we're getting better and better at that, uh, Google's got this great demo of uh AI noise cancellation, so you can be talking with someone on a speakerphone and the dog barks in the background and you don't hear the dog or the airplane. That's really nice. But nothing beats physics. And having a headphones and a microphone that's close to your mouth give you that advantage from physics. And it turns out the really good audio experience is a big part of feeling a more realistic connection to other people. While we've all mostly been focusing on what we can do with the video in things like Zoom and Meet and Skype and other tools. So anyway, that was his tool. And um, I used it for a party I held last year, one of my my first pandemic virtual party. I deliberately had seven different virtual technologies for people, guests to come and play in. So you could wander and there was a Zoom room and you could wander off into Discord and then you could link through into um, uh, um, what's the, um, I've forgotten all the names of all the tools I use, but I use Skype and I use High Fidelity. Uh, and uh, people, unfortunately, mostly sat in Zoom. The rule number one is people seem to use the thing they know. They're resistant to learning a new thing. And so that uh, that was <laughs> right. a negative consequence there. But they didn't like the time that we sort of overtly said, let's all go into high fidelity and play with it. And they, they did find it was better. And you could be more full duplex, which is to say, like human beings do, talk over each other, interrupt each other, which doesn't work very well when you try and do the... Um, the non-headphone experience with echo cancellation because right, you have to right. you have to stop it from happening because we're all wearing headphones we can do that so philip's system was headphone based it required you to have a headset um i say that to anyone who's doing a video meeting to just just force everyone to have headsets you know throw darts at them if you can virtually can do so <laughs> if you see them not wearing one so but anyway so, so going- but that's that, that's just a preface yeah yeah going down the, the path of the metaverse since the last time we talked there's been a whole lot of media hype around the metaverse. And, oh, I hadn't and, seen it. And, <laughs> and, and, and kind of wanted to, wanted to get some of your, your thoughts on, on um, kind of what, what actually represents the metaverse. And um, the, the, the discussions you have in Silicon Valley are obviously different than people have around uh, other parts of the country or the world. And um, is it living up to the hype? And uh, or, or will it eventually? Um, you know, I mean, in some ways, I'm sure it will be on the hype. And in other ways, it won't live up to the hype. That's pretty par for the course for anything like this. <laughs> um, Facebook, obviously, yes, changing their name, trying to say we're all in on this has certainly generated attention. Uh, there's everyone around Silicon Valley is constantly saying they've heard from a friend of a friend that Apple is doing something totally kick-ass in the space. And, you know, like everything Apple does, it's secret for now. I mean, I actually can see Apple. um, If I go out my balcony behind me, I can see their building. I could throw a rock at their building. I often want to throw a rock at their building. (laughs) But um, 
I still don't know what they're doing. You know, it doesn't it doesn't leak in that direction. Uh, and Apple, of course, has a history of doing things well when they're not the first player. Um, they have a history of doing them more expensively and, of course, ignoring all the other efforts that other people have had and making sure you have to buy a new connector. So I'm sure when Apple does this uh, metaverse, it'll need you to get the latest iPhone. That's obviously going to be the case. I meta. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. With, with its own connector. <laughs> um so the biggest problem with all of the VR and AR tools that we've got right now, and I just went uh, two weeks ago to the um, the AWE sort of uh, extended reality show that they have every year. And it was shrunk quite a, bit, quite a bit, by the way. And I don't know if it's a virus that we can blame or if we can blame everyone being scared of Facebook or Microsoft or Apple dominating it. But um, VR and AR today are, are very task-oriented, which is to say, you say, I'm going to do my VR AR task I put on some gear, which is not comfortable to wear. I do the task. And as soon as I'm done the task, I take it off and then that's it. So it's very much not like, say, your iPhone, which is a thing that lives with you all day um, and other devices. And everyone has sort of hoped for a world uh, where, like Google Glass, and I, I uh, was working at Google X when Google Glass was developed. In fact, it was Google Glass, which was the second product after the car, that made it a division rather than a project. And I sat with those guys and I, I did some very small work on that project, but wasn't heavily involved. And they made a big focus on trying to make it small and light, trying to make it uh, so unobtrusive that you would forget you had it on. Um, and you did, you actually, I mean, I remember I've gone to the bathroom with it on and other people have been annoyed that I'd brought a camera into the bathroom, <laughs> but um, we never really realized that nobody else would ever forget you had it on, right? Uh, it's still, even if you make it so light and by making it light, they had to have a low battery, which means they had to limit what it could do because when you have so little battery, you can only be on for 15 minutes uh, charge. Um, it looks like it's eight hours, but it's, you know, on for little snippets. That's how you make that work. So as long as it's this task-oriented thing, it, it sort of gets relegated into niches. It gets relegated into playing a game. It gets relegated into doing a business task. It may get relegated into doing a video meeting. Um, that's, that's not out of the question that a dedicated video meeting. But something that you'd wear all day to do your work on and off throughout the day, we're certainly not there yet. And in order to go beyond the hype, we need to get there. And so that needs some breakthroughs. And I've seen companies promising some of these breakthroughs just saw one last week um you know glasses with a wide field of view if you've ever put on magic leap or hololens you know that the physics of the waveguides they use constrain your field of view to about maybe 30 40 or 50 degrees at most and so there's this edge and it just totally breaks the illusion of what you're doing and that again makes it this task-oriented thing so it will be good at these tasks for now for it to become world-changing for it to change all the ways that we interact with computers, it needs to get past that somehow. And I certainly would look for people to make that happen. Oddly enough, we were just talking about audio. Audio augmented reality is at a place where it can be with you all the time. People have got uh, hearing aids or things like hearing aids that they put in their ears or Apple AirPods that they put in their ears all day. And some of those are starting to do things where they can be an assistant for you all day, which starts to be a thing that can change your life as opposed to a thing that helps you do a specific task. So that's where we get beyond the hype is when we get to that. Um, now, the other thing that people are hyping about Metaverse is they've you know, they got to sprinkle blockchain on it somehow. And um, 
you know, such such a misunderstood technology blockchains. I mean, they're re, they're useful and there's a lot of cool new things that get done by those. But because people are making so much money with them, everybody is convinced they're everything in the world and they're not. Uh, what they are is really useful for situations where you can't trust somebody. You want to have trust without having a central authority of trust. And there are applications for which that's absolutely important. But a lot of people build things on top of blockchains and they imagine um, that there's some special application of them and there isn't, that it would have worked fine with centralization or other things that were easier to build. And I have a feeling a lot of what people want for a metaverse is that. Not everything, but people sort of imagine it's all one big giant synergy and I, there's definitely some hype there. So, uh, so but let it, me, let me yeah. ask you about a specific example. Um, <clears throat> because there's a lot of talk about the metaverse changing retail. Um, mm -hmm. how, how would uh, a metaverse experience look and feel if you were to go into an online store and buy a coffee maker? What would be different about that from the way it is today? Well, so um, that is something that it could do because that is a task. Like you do sit down and say, I'm now going to shop for something. And so you could imagine putting on weird and obtrusive gear uh, when it's time to try that. Now, you know, being able to see the coffee maker in three dimensions and flip it around and stuff, for some products, that might be useful. Uh, I think visualizing clothes on yourself uh, in the mirror, I could see a value in that. Now, one thing that I am actually disappointed hasn't shown up, which doesn't require all that technology, is just the ability to buy bespoke clothing that's made by robots. I don't know why we don't have that yet, right? Um, it's apparently really hard to get robots to make clothing well. And the old-fashioned human uh, um, seamstresses and sewers, mostly, of course, in low-income countries these days, seem to do a much better job of that. But I've always um, expected at some point before too long, and by now I even expected it, you'd be able to order clothing online and not really worry about it was going to fit you because you've been measured in some system that measures you. And there's lots of people, I've been friends who've built companies to measure you in a hundred different ways or to put you in front of a, a camera that makes a 3D model of you and thus can really get a measure of the size of your body. And so tell you immediately whether this clothing is going to fit you and show you how it's going to look on you with just ordinary screens, no need for any sort of uh, immersed experience. But I don't think it'll be bad to give people an immersed experience. Clothing is one of the things that people definitely step back about buying online. They still like to go into stores, try it on, look at themselves in the mirror, feel how it feels to be on. Now, the, the metaverse is not yet anywhere near ready to give you the feel of wearing the clothing. Yeah, the touch and feel is is a, a piece that um, yeah, depends on how flexible the clothing is, whether it stretches. Um, uh, I, I have an odd body shape, so... I have a hard time if if I don't try. Is that, is that what the doctor told you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what. But uh, you're killing it in uh, odd body shape weekly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you if you can't feel how it feels when you put it on, then you don't know if it's going to be something you're going to like or not. Um, yeah, I so, mean that's that's what I'd hope that a really good measurement of me would. Be able to tell me this is not going to be tight if I don't want it to be tight. Those of us in that odd body shape club you were describing <laughs> uh, don't look as good in the spandex. Um, you know, we're not we're not going to work that. But uh, there are people who look fantastic in it, right? So for them, they're not going to get the feel of putting a spandex outfit on, yeah. even with uh, the 
tools we've got, at least not for a while. That's that's a pretty hard to say. Now, I actually do think what's really interesting, by the way, and I think is actually going to be, uh, I, I know some people who are trying to build approximations of this, uh, but I think that the way a virtual reality world should work is you go into a room. Uh, it doesn't actually have to be that big. It's probably bigger than the room in your house, though. And in that room are robots. And the robots um, have lots of arms, and they have a whole uh, palette of things they can put in those arms, surfaces, textures, all that sort of stuff. And so you put on the VR headset, which totally isolates you from what's going on, and you walk around. But when you're walking up to a door in the virtual reality, before you can put your hand on the door, a robot has zoomed in with a door handle in its arm and stuck a door handle there, and you'd grab it, and there'd be a door handle. And if you're going to touch the wall, it would it would have it would be sticking out a piece of wood that is the surface of that wall, and you could touch it and feel that wood. People have discovered that in VR environments, you can actually trick people into thinking that they're walking straight when they're actually walking in a circle. So uh, you, you sort of redirect them so that you tell them, okay, now you're gonna walk for a mile down this trail and they walk for a mile. Well, I don't know if they do it for a mile, but they walk for a long time and you've actually tricking them. So they just spin themselves in a circle many times and they actually do walk for a mile, but they don't leave the room. So it's actually possible to give people this illusion of, uh, of a large space and it can be full of things you can touch, anything the robot can, put out and have it meet your hand. And that's the, the thing that I think will be really cool in terms of gaming and experience of virtual environments. I actually do think that the world needs to come up with a another form of tourism. So obviously it's not been true for the last two years, but if you've been in the last several years before the virus to any of the, the great sites of the world, you've noticed something about them. They're absolutely packed full of other tourists. And wouldn't it be great if all those other damn tourists would not be there? <laughs> um, we all think that. And, you know, uh, not racist in any way, but yes, um, most of those tourists now are coming from Asia because the Asians are now getting rich, right? And they finally have the, the wealth to be able to tour the world. And it was the Germans and the Japanese who did it before them. And of course, the Americans who sort of ruined the world first. And um, so those things cannot withstand uh, India as well getting rich and all Indonesia and all the other uh, billions of people in the world being rich enough to tour it. There's no way to stand it. So we actually are going to have to produce some way to make a virtual environment that gives people a sense of visiting some of these great places in a way that they sort of you know feel they got a satisfactory visit. In fact, in some ways, a superior visit because we're going to photograph it at the perfect time of day with the light just right, uh, with um, no bad smells, nobody trying to sell you anything, and it'll be closed to other people while they photograph it. So you'll actually get to have the virtual pyramids or whatever it is you're trying to experience in a way a little bit better. Now, we don't, we're not sure what we think about this, but we don't, we don't have a choice, right? We just cannot have everybody go into all these places. Um, in France, there is a cave which is one of the oldest caves with uh, ancient paintings by the um, Alaska, the early, the early, exactly, the early Cro-Magnon people. And uh, that cave was closed in the 60s because just a small number, relatively, of tourists who were going into it uh, were ruining it and they were breathing and just their humidity in their breath was starting to decay the paintings, which had been there for 40,000 years. So they went and found another cave nearby and they duplicated it. Um, on the walls of that cave. And that's what you tour if you go tour it. 
Uh, I had a friend who, who was living in France and he actually got me into a, one of the real caves. And you got to admit, you feel different about the real cave. Uh, he actually tried to trick me by taking me to this hidden cave in the middle of the woods that had no signs, saying it was an undiscovered cave. Uh, and we went into it and had these amazing paintings on the wall. And I just said, no, 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 this is too good. This this can't be right. This can't be real. <laughs> and I was right. He was annoyed. He didn't trick me. Um, it had been made by a movie studio that had wanted to film <laughs> a scene. And they had painted a cave and, and painted it to look like. So isn't, uh, isn't it true that once we're able to experience all these things virtually, once you get to experience them in real life, it'll always be a letdown? You know, in some ways, I've, I've rarely been let down by reality, though, in things I've seen in movies and photographs, even in really good movies and photographs. But we need to make it that way. We need to make it. Now, I do this. I do really super high resolution photography, and um, it is good. People like it. Uh, when I put and see it in VR headsets, the resolution is way too low. So um, it's not the same as when I print them out at their full resolution or put them up on giant 4K monitors. But we'll be able to get to a point where you're going to feel that you've had at least a visual experience, you know, something with retinal resolution, maybe some of the sounds of the area, maybe some of the smells of the area. You could build a space like that, a theater. You know, before we could all fly, that's what they did. People people toured the world with travelogues. So a metaverse, a metaverse that lets us not destroy our world could actually be pretty handy. Yeah, there, there are lots of ancillary applications of it as well that I find very fascinating. So Cal Newport has written about how you might be able to use augmented reality or virtual reality to really achieve a very deep level of focus. I mean, you could essentially do your math homework in a Zen temple or, or, or something equivalently solemn. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no. I mean, right. Well, right now, all the gear we have is just too distracting. Well, sure, and sure. So this we're, is we're getting better at the at the motion sickness issues and so on. But pretty much a large fraction of people, they want to take it off after a while, even even if it's really good. Um, and so yeah. I don't know uh, whether it would actually be a more Zen space to do work. I'm a little skeptical. We have a long way to go on that. I don't know if it's impossible, but we certainly have some distance to go on that. Um, but the other application, of course, is as we've been desperate to do for the last 18 months is find a way to have personal social meetings with other people without giving them deadly diseases. And uh, all of the online virtual conferences tours, and um, I was like you, I'm a conference speaker. I've been going to a lot of virtual conferences. I've been speaking at some of them. I've been hanging out at a lot of them and they're all terrible. Um, <laughs> right. The, 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 the this, now, I, I will make a self-serving comment and say it's all because they're not paying the speakers anymore. Uh, and that actually is part of it, because as the saying goes, uh, not first coined about Facebook, but first famous about Facebook, that if you are not paying, you are um, not the customer, you are the product, right? As they say, that if the speakers are there because they want the audience, that's not in service of the audience. It's in service of the speaker who's felt it was worth their time. Uh, so they should pay their speakers. But that's not the only thing that's there. The thing that's really been missing, of course, is the thing we actually go to conferences for, that hallway uh, that you go to after the talks. And uh, most of the efforts to build something like that have been pretty meager. We've got Hop In, which got multi-billion dollar valuation um, for just doing very simple. They did chat roulette, basically, just without the dick pics. Um, <laughs> and it turns out, by the way, chat roulette without the dick pics is, is pretty good. I mean, it actually does give you something. And there have been a whole bunch of companies who've tried to improve on that and do what they'll call matchmaking. So they try and 
say, okay, I'm going to pair you up to talk with somebody else at the conference who is um, said they were interested in the same things as you. But that actually doesn't work. Um, most of the interactions I've had that have been pretty useful at conferences have come because I was standing there with some people that I knew. And then one of them said, oh, you should meet, you know, Mary over here. And Mary's walking by and they pull them over and they introduce us. And I've never seen anybody really make that flow of introduction that goes on. And the second thing has been just the random gatherings. Those are also interesting ways to meet people. But um, uh, there are some of the tools that have, you know, little tables. Everyone sits at a table for some kind of lunch where you're not eating. Uh, and they do a random gathering. But every time I've seen it, people get pretty tired of it pretty quickly and they wander off. So if we can make a metaverse that can replicate that experience of being in the big social crowd with hors d'oeuvres at the reception, obviously the hors d'oeuvres are difficult, uh, then maybe we can get something really useful out of that because we're certainly missing it the last two years. Mm -hmm. And if we could really pull it off, I think we wouldn't. But the truth is uh, everyone who's been going to the conferences that have started up in, in the last uh, little while is going, oh my God, it's so good to see human beings again. Oh yeah. Um, so uh, going back to the metaverse, what, what do you think, outside of gaming, what do you think the killer apps are going to be? Well, I mean, that's the one I was hoping to be, uh, was socializing and, and right. uh, telepresence, virtual so, telepresence. So an now, advanced, advanced form of Zoom. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, uh, beyond an advanced form of Zoom, I mean, an advanced form of Hopin would be, because Hopin's aimed at conferences and Zoom okay. is aimed at, uh, at small meetings. Although small meetings also uh, would be pretty good. Um, you know, I... I um, I mean, yeah, there'll be some shopping applications uh, and uh, things that you might consider gaming. Now, there's a lot of people actually uh, doing the, what I think is interesting after the gaming is gaming that's very physical. So you've got Beat Saber would be sort of the, the poster child killer app of the Oculus Quest, or now though, I guess it's Meta Quest. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but, you know, some way uh, like Dance Dance Revolution did in its day before it, where you actually started doing physical and social things with other people with these tools. And uh, one friend of mine has got a company where he's building something that's, that's kind of like that thing with the robots. That I said it's a, it's a climbing wall, though. Right? So you, you, can, you can be climbing this wall and you reach out, and you grab this virtual thing, and there really is something there for you to grab and you really pull yourself up. And it uh, it's, you know silently lowers you so you're not actually getting any higher, but you feel like you've climbed a wall. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, so that kind of haptic feedback stuff, I think, will will make the metaverse much more interesting. And you can browse the companies that are trying to do this. There's people making suits that have electric shocks, so that when you're shot by your friend, you um, you really want to kick him later, and uh, <laughs> these sort of things. But um, so far, still very primitive. Uh, so whether we'll spend a lot of time, but that's you can you can view that a type of gaming, but it actually is going beyond gaming. When it's where you're getting your workout or it's where you're actually, you know, doing an activity with friends that you would have liked to do out in the wild. So we, we've come across this question quite a few times in a lot of different contexts, but uh, the evolution of identity is um, a, a kind of an interesting topic. And in, in the metaverse, does it make sense for an AI to have its own identity? Well, I guess this word identity is very loaded for me. And um, um, so I think our identity is overrated. Um, and, uh, or in fact, overrated is the wrong term for it, actually. That it's just, in many cases, the wrong direction. Now, we're all very used to the idea of identity and identity cards in the real world. And uh, to 
make people rethink how they feel about that. I'll pull out a driver's license and say, why does this need my name on it? And people are shocked at that question. They say, what do you mean? A driver's license without your name on it? That doesn't make any sense. So why doesn't it just have a picture of me and a, you know, certified hologram saying this person is licensed to drive or this person is old enough to drink, which is the other thing that we do with the card most of the time. Why does it need more than it doesn't, right? I mean, uh, uh, police just want to know if you're licensed to drive. They can look at the picture and say, yeah, this, this dude's licensed to drive. They don't really need to have your address or anything else. Now, if they want to arrest you, then yeah, then it's time for them to talk about your name or if you've done something wrong. Then you can pull out the other card you might have, which might have your picture and your name or might have your address or those other things. Um, but we've become so wedded to the idea of identity, of tying it all together into this one thing, which is identical to us. That's what the word means. Uh, I'm not sure that was the right approach. And there's no need for that in a metaverse, right? It's you, you, can, you can think about it this other way, which is to say that you have attributes, and a name is just one of your attributes. An address is one of your attributes. Being able to drive is just one of your attributes. Um, and there's no reason that they have to be bundled together. They can be bundled together later if there turns out to be a reason for a specific purpose to have that. So uh, can an AI have attributes? Of course it can. Um, maybe the question you asked was, will we let AIs have the attributes that humans have, let them act as humans? And um, we won't specifically let them act as humans, but we'll certainly act as humans when they're acting on behalf of humans, which is, for now, all that they do. Yeah, but it does it make sense for um, an AI to have its own bank account, to have its own uh, social media identity um, for um, being able to make purchases and investments um, I mean, there's there's lots of things that you start going down that path, and um, and and then do you need to understand when you're dealing with AI versus dealing with an actual human? Right. Um, and well, that's been that's been the province of a number of science fiction novels, of course. Yep. Um, right. And now that we do have um, things like Bitcoin, it's certainly much easier for a piece of software to um, act. A, um, I mean, we've had computers able to spend our money with our banks for some time, although we usually have a lot of rigmarole, like extra two-factor authentication and stuff like that to sort of try and make sure that the only person who can spend all the money in my bank account is me. Uh, but when you use um, totally digital money, it's certainly very easy to give software the ability to spend that money. And people have certainly written sort of dystopian or uh, apocalyptic stories about AIs who have the ability to um, amass large amounts of money and then use it for whatever the AI's purposes are. But today, of course, AIs don't have legal rights to own anything. Only humans and, and uh, proxies of humans like corporations have legal rights to do that. Now, some people are tying AIs with corporations and use that proxy ability. Uh, and someday we might imagine a legal regime that says, oh, actually, we could think of something other than a human or a corporation as owning property. We're certainly not there yet. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean we can't pretend it, we can't fake it. But in, in this case, it's always some human being has created or turned on the AI and endowed it with money or endowed it with capabilities that can let it earn money and then let it use in the world to meet not the 
AI's goals. I mean, we might think of them as the AI's goals, but they're the goals that the human um, created. Today, we think of AI's exclusively as slaves, right? They're property, they're owned by people, um, and that's it. And uh, I actually get a little scared of that because while we imagine eventually making AI's that match us or even surpass us in their ability, starting from slavery, I don't think that's ever ended well. <laughs> uh, so, um, but um, but most of the people I, I I go to conferences where people talk about artificial general intelligence, which is to say uh, uh, AI that's uh, that's matching humans or has the same general capability that humans have, as opposed to the very specific ability to recognize a dog right. um, as uh, as the kind of AI that we build today. Although, by the way, interestingly enough, for those who are old enough. Uh, it means that on the internet, we now do know if you're a dog or not. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. See, the, the older one in the picture laughed more. This is a very famous cartoon from the 1990s, uh, which only old people now remember. You guys who are listening can look it up. Uh, but anyway, we, we do have that ability. Um, so mostly when I worry about AI today, I don't worry about the AI being evil because I don't think it's good or bad. I think it's the human beings that are good or evil and they use AI for good or ill intent or purposes. And that's mostly what I worry about. One interesting wrinkle to this question of whether or not we should have algorithms or software contracts, what have you, that have identities online or property or able to have some limited version of legal rights is uh, this project altered state machines i don't know if you've you've, you've heard about them but they, no i haven't I haven't looked at that they are building a platform essentially pinning nft well so making nfts out of some of these algorithms so the the artificial intelligence that might power a non-playable character in a game or even one that you might use to complete different tasks is actually one that can be owned in an nft format and used across a wide variety of different domains and so if you imagine, you know, that playing out for a number of years, you could get some pretty sophisticated algorithms doing some very sophisticated things that uh, might necessitate their having a bank account, might necessitate their executing actions on behalf of, of the people that own them or that, that operate them by proxy. And you would be able to tie that to a person in a very immutable way and bring in all of the advantages that the yeah. blockchain has. Well, well, no, no, that's that's much beyond that because one thing about smart contracts, uh, um, whether you involve NFTs or not, uh, but money blockchains and smart contracts is that while legally only people uh, or aggregates of people can own things, um, that's not true within um, these blockchains. I mean, it's just whatever is in, so the fact that I own that AI uh, and thus technically whatever property it owns is my property won't help me because there's no court or uh, government who I could come in and say, hey, go and, and get me the private keys um, of this, AI, if it's outside the jurisdiction in another country, for example. Right. Um, so today, you know, if I have a robot and the robot has some gold and so the robot belongs to me and the gold belongs to me, uh, if the robot, for some reason, is refusing to hand over this gold, I can get use physical force to take the gold from the robot, as long as the robot is not some all-powerful thing, in which case we've got other things to worry about. <laughs> um, but in this case, no, I mean, the um, um, if the robot is, or if the AI is built in some way that it exists and has the private keys in a way that I can't access or no government can access then whatever the law may say doesn't change what I can do and can't do. And you cannot shut it down 
um, because that's exactly how the money blockchains are designed so that they can't be shut down by any central party without extreme efforts. I mean, you, the governments of the world could get together and, and shut down Ethereum or, or Bitcoin, but it would be very hard. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to do it just so I can get my gold. No. Yeah, I think that uh, there will likely be a number of experiments that become famous where people are locked out of smart contracts along similar such lines. And hopefully will serve as a lesson for the rest of us. Th- those are just well, going to be mean, lessons the, that are learned the hard way. The Ethereum DAO was already that lesson for those yeah. not familiar with the very first sort of uh, smart contract to do a distributed autonomous organization, which is what that stands for, um, was compromised. It had bugs in it. And all the people, well, not all the people, but most of the people involved with Ethereum said, okay, that was a mistake. Whoops, our bad. Let's rewrite the Ethereum rules to undo that. But it required them all, the majority of them, to get together. And in fact, some didn't get in on this. They went off on their own and they lost. The people who went off on their own, they definitely lost the game. But it also made things so that this is not likely to happen again. Um, That uh, it would have to be something really drastic, like something world-shaking, before they would all get together and, and undo something that was not supposed to be undone. So if if we actually uh, somehow make uh, an AI so it actually has legal standing, um, like a corporation, um, and then you have an incident like the Colonial Pipeline that um, gets ransomed, and, uh, and people say, well, that wasn't me, that was that AI over there that did that, um, is, is it reasonable to think that we might have some separation between the people pulling the strings and the AIs that are committing the crime? Well, what do you mean by separation? I mean, uh, if if we've explicitly made a law to say that you aren't responsible for what the AI that you deploy does, well, then that would be a separation. I'm not sure we're going to explicitly say that. I was talking last minute about how it um, might happen by default. Mm -hmm. Um, you could you could certainly see someone creating an AI, sitting it loose in the world, giving it independence through things like Ethereum, um, and then trying to say, look, I never expected it to do this. And so someone who tried to sue you for negligence or um, you know malfeasance would probably not be able to produce ill intent. A lot of the law doesn't punish human beings until we can prove bad intent on their part. So there may be simply nobody to blame. Whether or not societies would accept that, would they accept that we're just not going to hold anyone in any blame? It's Who knows, right? I mean, we may not even get a choice about it. Yeah, well, c- case law will have to evolve to delineate between the different circumstances. Yeah. Like, was, was there any reasonable way you could have known that yeah. these would be the consequences of unleashing this thing or deploying it in a certain way or making modifications to a yeah, source the, code. The, the whole idea of putting AI in prison for the next 20 years really doesn't uh, carry well, much yeah. Well, you want to go after the human <laughs> beings, right? <laughs> well, there, there are two goals society might have. They might want to shut down the evil AI, which, again, they try and figure ways to do, which could require things as drastic as forking a blockchain and then killing off the uh, the fork in which the AI exists. Um, that would happen if it were tremendously dramatic. Now, it would also make a big difference as to whether the AI did something physical and harmful, like, you know, putting out contract kills on people, uh, which has been the subject of science fiction stories from time to time, uh, or whether it was just a uh, tort matter, 
Um, but, you know, the truth is uh, with torts, what we usually have is uh, what we call a standard of care. And society and courts over time define how much care are you supposed to take when you do stuff? And um, we'll eventually have a standard of care, but I don't think we have one yet beyond what derives from our old ones over what you're supposed to do when you're letting loose killer robots on the world. Uh, but right now, if it's literally killer robots, I think people would say there is a standard of care. You know, that's don't do that. Right. <laughs> we've, we've been playing around with this scenario of um, of the birth certificates in the future are likely to become NFTs. And if, if you were to have an NFT birth certificate and then you would put a, a, a drop of DNA on it, then you would know exactly who that person was and how they were connected to the rest of the world. Now, if you... I, I would not think birth certificates would become NFTs. Um, I mean, NFTs, first of all, a little bit of a misnomer because all fragments of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and almost all the other blockchain things, they're all non-fungible. Uh, the only reason people think they're fungible is because there's a social agreement that says one piece of Bitcoin is just as good as another piece of Bitcoin. But they all have unique identity numbers. They're all uniquely traced back through their complete transaction history. There's nothing especially fungible about them in the system. Some people said, say, let's take advantage of the fact that they're all fungible to say, I'm going to tie this one little fragment of Ethereum with a piece of uh, virtual property. And therefore we can trade it as we can also trade all things. Now, a birth certificate is usually a certificate from a government that you have been born in a place and you have the rights of a citizen of such a place, which is the main thing you get from your birth certificate. So um, I would think those would continue to be issued by governments, whether they should be digitally signed. Sure, they should be digitally signed, but that doesn't make them an NFT. And uh, an NFT, again, is, is this token that exists in it's not different from any of the other tokens. It's one that happens to have been given association with a certain value. And it's in a place where we have, everyone's agreed that it would be better if no governments or central parties were involved in certifying what's happening. But a birth certificate is one of the core things at which we expect governments to certify what's happened. Uh, I can't think of one that's even more uh, centrally certified by a government. So if we take take that scenario a few steps farther, if we if we somehow tie a birth certificate to DNA and then we're able to actually find, know instantly who the actual father and mother are um, of, of that child, then, <clears throat> then it would seem like over time we'd want to start linking all of these together so that then we could actually create a, a kind of a genealogical grid map for all of humanity. Now, scientifically, there's lots of advantages for um, understanding the flow of hereditary diseases and which people are more likely to contract certain diseases than others. Um, and, uh, and, and knowing that information is valuable on one hand, but it's also dangerous on another hand, uh, knowing that somehow you were, your father was a, a serial killer or a, a, a child trafficking person or somebody like that. Uh, how do you separate yourself out from that? How do you maintain some level of privacy in that type of situation? Uh, well, it's challenging. Now, um, of course, Iceland did uh, genotype, I pretty think their entire population. Maybe there were some people who got exemptions from that. Uh, and um, you don't really 
um, need to record. I mean, the scanning of your DNA, it's just written in there who your parents are if you have access to the DNA of any of your relatives. Um, You don't even need certificates or anything else of that to do that. In fact, you can't really hide this because you're shedding your DNA everywhere you go. Um, And anyone who wants to get your DNA and doesn't really that much effort for them to get it from you. It's one of the most hard things in the world to secure. It makes it interesting because we cannot physically secure it. We might actually have to come up with rules and laws about what people can do with our DNA because everything else we protect, we sort of like have a vault we can put it in. You know, you can put your your private data into an encrypted disk. You can put your um, your the keys to your safety deposit box in a safe. Um, you know, this we can't do with DNA. It's just going to get out and it's going to be there no matter what we do. And um, I, you know, I, whether you need to put someone's DNA in their birth certificate, well, I, as I mentioned, birth certificates are created by governments and uh, they have various reasons why they want to do that. Usually they convey a right of citizenship, for example. That's the, probably the most important thing. And they also will convey, obviously, parental associations and then the parental duties and parental rights over the child. So I could see governments saying, yeah, we'd like to really verify that by using DNA. So far, I haven't heard of anyone wanting to do that. Uh, but it is it is interesting because uh, now, for example, uh, my uh, older brother and sister um, were born to a different father than I was. But when my father married my mother, um, he adopted them. But he adopted them in a way that actually changed their birth certificates. Their birth certificates have his name as the father, uh, as though he, as though their genetic father, had, well, he was not just their genetic father. I mean, he, he and my mother were married when they were born. So governments have actually been willing to do the opposite of this. They've been willing to say, regardless of what actually happened, we're going to say for legal purposes, this man is the true and 100% father of these children. Um, now, a genetic test would immediately reveal that he's not, but we've actually been willing to go the other way. So I'm not sure whether or not we'd want to say we want to to make it so hard and fast. We may want to say that, in fact, um, parenthood is a legal thing and not a genetic thing, uh, and that we want to treat it as a legal thing and therefore not tie it to DNA so tightly. Yeah, there's a difference between genetic relationships. Oh, sorry, Mike and Deb, if I just revealed your dark secret. Well, secret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, there's a difference between genetic relationships and paper relationships. Um, and so, well, I don't know. I mean, to the, to the adopted people that I know, um, I, uh, they agree with this largely, but they hate this term real father, which is sometimes used when you have discovered uh, what's called a non-parental event. Um, they actually have a term for it, that, that, that you were adopted or you were the child of, um, of an infidelity or any of the other reasons why the man on your birth certificate or the man who raises you, it's almost always the man who's the odd one out here, of course, because women rarely get confused about giving birth. Um, but, but, you know, sometimes you'll hear this phrase, so that's my real father. No, your real father is the man who was there yep. and raised you. And call that other person your sire, if you want, or your gene father. Um, and maybe you still want to have a relationship with them, and you can. But don't call them your real father. Call them your gene. And so that's what's much more important. And I don't think we'd want a world where we flip that back. Yeah, but is, isn't there um, a lot of value in having a genealogical uh, uh, kind of a grid map that connects people that we know 
um, kind of our likelihood to catch cancer or the likelihood that we're going to get uh, gout when we're 50. Um, well, for ourselves, it can be valuable and anyone can go and sequence their own DNA today um, and keep it private to yourself. Or if you want, you can put it into the databases of the companies who will do it at a discount if you do that. I've done that myself. In fact, I was an advisor to 23andMe when they uh, started their project. And of course, now they're really valuable and I wish I'd gotten some stock, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I, I, that's, it's your genes which affect your medicine. Yes, doctors always want to ask about your family history, but the main reason they ask about it is just they, they want to get the quickest way they know to find out if there's anything in your genes which they should be worried about medically. But if you can actually get your genes, your own genes, you don't need your parents' genes. You don't even need to know who they were or where they came from. You just need to know what ended up in you because that's the thing that's going to affect your health. You know, in many ways, it's an interesting philosophical battle here because a lot of human history uh, of, of, of liberalism in general has been this question of should we divorce your genes from who you are? And so racism is effectively trying to very much tie your genes, your ancestry to your lot in society. And we've been fighting that principle and saying, you know, it really shouldn't be the luck of your genes shouldn't affect your human rights. It shouldn't affect how the society treats you, how the government treats you, even how other people treat you. And the old way of thinking in the world was very much birth was everything. And, uh, you know, you, you were noble born or you were um, peasant born. And this dictated the story of your life. And in fact, the enlightenment has been about reversing that. And so I would find it odd to think that now that the enlightenment has given us DNA, that we'd want to do anything to unreverse it. Uh, while we still want access to all of the tools that we can get about helping us learn about our health from our genes. Seems like there are some interesting questions around data sovereignty. And I think that solving some of those problems might help us have the advantages of the global database of genomics, along with being able to do some of these things like hide information you don't want people to have, preserve some of your privacy. We, we've had conversations with several people. Uh, the one that comes to mind is Irene Ng, who's the CEO of DataSwift. And these have all centered around the different ways in which you can control who has access to your information. So with sort of the blossoming of the internet age and the explosion of Facebook and social media companies, the default has been just to kind of broadcast all of this information all the time and to not worry too much about who owns it, about who gets to use it, about who gets to control access to it and the ways in which they might enforce that. But there's a move to reverse some of those trends and to make the default more the individual who generates the data having control over it and deciding who's going to get to use it. And they might be able to release some information to their doctor, some information to their insurance companies, some to their spouse or their children, and otherwise to keep a lock on it. And if, if we could navigate those waters, it seems like we might be able to have the global database that scientists could use on a you know pseudonymous or anonymous base, basis to study genetic illnesses or how our diets are affecting gene expression through epigenetic channels while also allowing me to stop anyone who uh, anyone from viewing it that I didn't want explicitly to have permission to view it. So this is really one of the central questions of genetic privacy. 
And it's really, really hard. I mean, in the sense that I don't know if anybody has an answer to this problem. Now, the general principle in data gathering is don't let the data out of your hands or it's going to be reused and repurposed. And nobody has ever stopped that from happening. In spite of all the promises people will make and say, oh, yes, your data are protected. They belong to you. You control them. It always ends up somewhere else. And, and, and nobody's really come up with a great solution for it. We add to that, that other problem that I outlined, that you cannot stop shedding your DNA, right? You, you cannot keep your DNA private the same way I can keep my files private on an encrypted disk. And that adds up to a really difficult thing. And then we get to add the third thing that you sort of mentioned, which is that if we really did have a big database of everyone's genes and everything about them, wow, we'd learn a lot of really useful medical stuff and we would learn to detect and treat a lot of diseases and a lot of people's lives would be saved. Uh, it's So that's why there's no answer to this. There's no easy answer to this because all those are colliding and there's no solid fix. I wish there were a fix. At best, we've been hoping for, uh, you know, it'll work out somehow. It's a mystery, to quote from Shakespearean love. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that we were, we're just going to let this date out and we're going to hope it turns out well. And by the way, not just in the movies, that actually does happen. You know, actually good results do happen from time to time. And um, maybe with the right um, attitudes in society, uh, the thing, okay, you've got access to genetic information. So right now what we've got happening, though, is a lot of people have uh, contributed DNA into databases and contributed other information. Now, when I'm in 23andMe, now because I was doing work there, I have a truly anonymous kit. I didn't buy it with a credit card, so it's not connected to me. And I used a, a, a disconnected email to connect to it, everything else. So it'd be a lot of work to trace my profile back to me. It's got a fake name and everything else. Um, although it would still be doable with someone we're really determined. Uh, most people, though, are in there and they bought the kit with a real credit card and, and they used a real email that was connected to them and everything else. And they're in there and they're hoping to trust the company and the other companies that are in this space to keep the data secure and also not to be a bad actors with it. But it's really useful stuff. I mean, you know, they, they're getting to learn things. And so um, some people have argued that while I love privacy all the time, when you talk about like, you know, curing cancer earlier, Maybe I'm willing to give up some privacy in the world for that. And other people say, well, I don't know, because we're not sure we're going to cure the cancer. And we are pretty sure that some of this data will be misused. Yeah, the, the medical uses for uh, the genetic data would uh, mean it would invariably get used for taxes as well. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's one thing the world is not too bad at um, in terms of, you know, the, the, that they... Uh, the IRS keeps a very uh, thick wall between itself and the rest of the government. And, you know, you, you are legally required to declare your bribes on your tax return. And they do not come to you later and say, oh, bribery, we're going to charge you with bribery because you had bribes on your tax return. Famously, Al Capone was arrested because he wasn't reporting his illegal income on his taxes. Uh, and he, in theory, and maybe more than in theory, if he had reported his illegal income on his taxes, it wouldn't have been able to arrest him for being a gangster. So the lesson of all this is that you should trust the IRS more than you already are. Well, I mean, tr trust them. An with unusual takeaway, I have to say. Certainly, certainly not totally. I mean, no, no, no. If, um, if there's, a, if you're a specific person in the IRS and someone wants to be corrupt and bribe people, uh, my father got famous. Uh, well, he was famous, but he um, 
he he did a campaign. He had a radio show in the seventies, and he was approached by a guy, and this guy was willing to sell him the tax returns of any member of parliament he wanted, and so he sold him lots of tax returns of different members of parliament. And he went on the radio and said, "I've I've got these tax returns," and police came and talked to him and stuff. But because he was press, nothing happened to him. But that certainly does go on. Um, it's it's only like the former president whose tax returns we can't seem to see. <laughs> Well, but the New York Times, well, the New York Times did get their hands on them, right? And uh, and they reported on them, but they didn't publish what everything was in them. Well, we are coming up almost to an hour here, and this has been a, a wide-ranging and interesting conversation. Are there any final yeah, thoughts we, you'd like we, to leave us with? Well, we didn't do any robots. Uh, we didn't do autonomous robots. vehicles. We didn't, we didn't talk about ethics. Robots. Well, well, see, I've, I've actually been playing around with this idea that um, 20 years from now, you're going to walk into a robot store and each of the robots will have a rating on it. Uh, I call it an HIU rating, which is a human intelligence unit rating. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like horsepower. Um, so how smart are these robots? Because I, I, I don't want a really smart one to be doing my lawn. Uh, I don't need to pay for extra intelligence to do my lawn. But if it's... Um, uh, maybe if it's cooking my food, I want something a little smarter. But if I'm having good conversations, um, philosophical debates with a robot, I want something that's much brighter. So maybe it has a rating of a 3.4 HIU, and the one doing the lawn is maybe a 0.6 HIU. Uh, well, so in the in the novel River of Gods by Ian McDonald, uh, a great science fiction novel, um, the AIs in that world are indeed rated by that. But it was it's illegal to make one above 3.9. I think oh. they actually they do use that four is is, is the too high number, uh, and uh, well, um, the uh, uh, protagonist is a uh, AI police uh, who hunts down these uh, robots, and and uh, lots of hilarity ensues. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, I, I recommend Ian McDonald to you if you're interested in that area. Um, you won't walk into that robot store, of course. It'll come to you. Oh yeah, yes. it'll be in the metaverse. Uh, yeah, yeah, very likely. Yeah, yes. If it's smart enough, it will know what you want. So yeah. it will just show up one day. And we'll be taxing those robots, too. <laughs> and storing its information <laughs> on the blockchain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't know about, uh, I don't know about the, uh, that robot score. Certainly, uh, people already promote the AIs they build by how good they are. And um, uh, there are the scores that they get on the various AI benchmark tests for recognizing dogs, as we were talking about earlier, as well as other things. So, yeah, that's, not a, that's something that's already, uh, already underway. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure this time as it was last time. Yeah, good to talk to you guys again, and uh, good luck with future podcasts. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there's there's been a lot that's happened, by the way, of course, in, oh, yeah. in self-driving vehicles and in transportation. And uh, there's been a lot that's happened in a lot of fields. So I'm sure there's more in the world to learn. We'll have to have a, a third podcast with Brad Templeton. All right. All right. Thanks, good. Brad. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.